Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at foodthoughtpod, and if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Today, I'm talking with Zane McNeil about his new book, Vegan Entanglements, Dismantling Racial and Carceral Capitalism, and what carceral veganism and anti-carceral veganism means and what they look like. We also discuss at the end of the interview his other new book that just came out, Y'all Means All, The Emerging Voices Clearing Appalachia. We didn't talk about how you get two edited volumes out back-to-back while still sleeping, but maybe we should have. We also discuss the promise and perils of NGOs and institutional activism, different approaches to legal activism, the connections between veganism and other radical goals, and more. It was a really fascinating conversation, and I'll need to get Zane back on at some point to go over some of the things we had to elide or just point to. So let me read Zane's biography. Zane McNeil is the founder of the DEIJ organization Roots DEI Consulting and Policy and co-manager of the labor rights group Rights for Animal Rights Advocates, or RARA, which we discuss on the podcast. They have published anthologies on anti-carceral veganism and queer and trans liberation with PM Press, Sanctuary Press, and Lantern Publishing and Media. They are also a contributing writer with Sentient Media and Law at the Margins. And now... Here's my conversation with Zane McNeil. I heard you had just been accepted to law school, so congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I've, it's been very stressful and overwhelming, but also exciting, I guess, but not quite yet. Yeah, my uh, youngest brother uh, went through that process last year, and it was very, very intense. <laughs> Where did he end up? Uh, he is now at uh, the University of Miami. Oh, oh yo. yeah, I'm in uh, Orlando. I applied for Miami. Oh, you should you should hang out with him when you get down there. He he's focusing on um, immigration law because he lived for quite a few years down in Colombia, and so mm-hmm. and is in fact married to a woman from Colombia. So, um, and after he came back to the United States, using his Spanish abilities, he was working with a law firm that works on immigration claims, asylee claims, refugee claims, things like that. And so he's um, going to law school to specialize in helping people, you know, who have refugee or asylee claims come to the United States. I uh, I can't speak Spanish at all, which is why I'm not going to the University of Miami. <laughs> but very similarly, like I was doing my own work with like labor and advocacy and felt that I thought that if I got an MA, that would be enough to get me to where I wanted to do and do the work I wanted to do. And then when it didn't pan out, I was like, fine, I guess I have to go to law school. I was like, PhD or law school, I guess I'll go do law school. Yeah, I think uh, speaking as somebody who has a PhD, I think you probably made the right choice. So yeah, yeah in fact, like we... Well, yeah, I know it's it's a bit the of a bummer. austerity and academy. Yeah, it's mostly just ended up being thinking about how toxic the academy is and mine as well. Yeah, you know, space is a little more stable, less precarious. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case that you know lawyers will tell you that they have a lot of toxicity in their profession mm-hmm. as well. But I think it has to do with uh, how much you can make your own space without needing anyone else to help you with it. You know, it's sort of the with academia, you need a lot of people to say yes to do anything interesting. You have to be within an institution. Law right. is a little easier to be an agitator. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, in fact, let's maybe we can jump over and talk about that first. Um, so, what was the work that you were doing before you decided to apply to law school? What's your sort of uh, activist work that you're that you were working on? 
Sure. So I'll just tell a little bit of my story first. So I mm-hmm. had a BA in history and I mostly focused on the, I did my capstone on the suffragette movement, specifically how it was in actively engaging in white supremacist tactics to solidify white women's ability to vote. And then, so I was really interested in activist history, intellectual history, and then went up to Budapest to do an MA in political science. And I was asking very similar questions about the LGBT movement, specifically, you know, about white supremacy in the LGBT movement, pink capitalism, those sort of things, and uh, Black liberation and trans liberation folks, the work they're doing to try to circumvent and subvert and challenge just the traditional and normative LGBT work. And then after I got done with that, I interned around D.C. for about a year in policy and government relations with animal welfare. I had been working in animal welfare off and on since I was 14. I've been vegan since I was 14 and I was really engaged in how animal liberation just wasn't not just connected to non-human animals, but also to other systems of oppression and other kind of social justice rights movements. And so I was working in that and I was very disillusioned by my experience in these larger NGOs. And when I left that, those spaces, I was trying to find my first salary job and just sort of fell into law. So I, I worked as a legal assistant and paralegal in different, very boring <laughs> spaces for the past right. two and a half years. But while doing that full time, I also got very engaged in you know critical geographies, choreopolitics, critical animal studies. And that sort of work as well, as well as getting more involved in freelance writing and, and labor work. That's cool. And so uh, what are some of the organizations that you've been, been starting or that also you've been working with? So the most exciting spaces I've been in, I work as a project manager for the digital services at Sentient Media. Sentient Media is a nonprofit journalist kind of network. And mm-hmm. in addition to having their own platform for releasing stories on animal agriculture. They also try to train advocates into doing freelance journalism to be able to pitch these stories to larger and wider news networks who have more space for coverage and, and more reader readership, more audience. But they've also moved, they've grown a lot in the past year or two. So in addition to that, they've also been helping NGOs do work on SEO They've been releasing their own courses. I do course content for them. I did one on collaborative advocacy. We have one on labor rights coming out. I drafted a DIJ course for them. So really cool conversations and collaborations happening in that space. And then as uh, I think what you're getting at is, is RaRa, which is super exciting. I actually wasn't part of the foundation of RaRa, which is Rights for Animal Rights Advocates. They had started about five to six months before I got involved with them, they had all left a larger NGO, Animal Welfare International Group, and they had felt very disillusioned. They had they faced a lot of discrimination and exploitation in that space. And so instead of just leaving and feeling completely defeated and burnt out, they tried to turn it into a labor rights and worker solidarity group. And so we're still in the midst of incorporating that. And it looks like we're moving forward with kind of creating kind of sort of a glass door so advocates can sort of rate the NGOs they work for, talk about the equity issues. We can reach out to these organizations and try to consult them on the DIJ issues and labor issues that are that their staff are saying are there, you know, try to work with unionization efforts and nonprofit unions, and then also help with whistleblowers. That's really cool. Yeah, the um, the good work that NGOs do is certainly present, but sort of the mechanism of having to be 
an NGO and having to find funding consistently, um, having to perpetuate, you know, leadership structures within the NGO can lead to a lot of, um, you know, ossification can lead to something being, uh, much more oriented around continuing into the next year and continuing to keep everybody employed than it is trying to achieve the things that it was originally set up for. So I think some kind of transparency would be good. The, the same sort of oppressive logics outside of it, right? That's the idea of the nonprofit industrial complex is that you always right. have to get funding. Funding is obviously um, brought by people who are survivors and, and exploiters of capitalism. And then those same structures get uh, reified in these, in these spaces. And so that's what happens when grassroots movements try to assimilate into these larger institutions. And yeah. I think what Rara is trying to do is to advocate and ally in solidarity with these workers and laborers and nonprofits, both in grassroots and in these institutions. Yeah, that's good. And in fact, you know, that interaction of how to move through an unjust space, you know, to live in an unjust world and try to get something good done without yourself perpetuating it or without strengthening it at, at the minimum, uh, is one of the things that you wrestle with in this uh, book that you brought together collaboratively with some other authors, Vegan Entanglements. So can you tell uh, our audience a little bit about the, the book itself? Sure. So Vegan Entanglements, Dismantling Racial and Cursual Capitalism was really brought about from this chapter that Lee Kurtz, who's a journalist, had written in a previous collection I worked on um, that was really centering queer and trans voices, queer and trans vegan voices, and trying to amplify these historically marginalized people in the movement and, you know, the larger society as a whole. And Lee had written on this idea of carceral veganism. And I had never had the right language to try to understand or, or conceptualize this idea because I'd worked in these larger NGOs and I was very uncomfortable, not just with the carceral logics that I found there or, you know, the transphobia or the white supremacy that existed there, but also the way that it wasn't, I don't, I'd like, it wasn't shaken up. Like, right. That was, just, that was what was seen as progress. The conversations we had in these spaces that I saw as problematic were a way to measure the success for in funders and everything else. And so Lee had done this great chapter, really just identifying the ways that this carceral rhetoric was used in larger organizations like ALDF, ASBCA, HSUS. And at the time it ended up being published and on shelves, I had just taken a job as a paralegal with the ALDF. And I, <laughs> yeah, which is, it was very funny timing. And yeah. so I went into the space, you know, with this chapter in mind and I, I found my my own obstacles that I felt like I had to overcome in the space. And I really had trouble with the criminal justice side of it that was in this organization, as well as the communications and rhetoric side. You know, they're they're really well known for this this phrase, you know, hurt an animal, go to jail. And that's really what right. they try to give out to their to get donors and get funders. And so these were actually all conversations we were having internally. This was also the time, summer of 2020, with the murder of George Floyd. And so for the first time, a lot of these organizations finally felt like they had to be, they were shamed into really trying to figure out not just what they should say about the Black Lives Matter movement or how to work on their own DEIJ issues, but also whether they should. And that was a really difficult time for me because the staff really wanted to see these organizations move past single issue veganism and the management really didn't want to. And that wasn't just ALDF, but a lot of other organizations. And so I had gotten together with Lee and with Lori Gruen, who really is a philosopher who focuses on 
uh, ethics of captivity. And then Justin Marceau, who is really well known for his, he's an animal law professor. He does a lot of constitutional law. And he had done the book Beyond Cages. And so my friend, uh, Will Horn, who I've been on, he does the Access History Review. And so he was a facilitator of that because I felt like I wasn't in a, a safe enough space to be the facilitator. And I, I knew him professionally. And so they had this great conversation on the issues of carceral veganism in that, in that point in time during the Black Lives Matter uprising in 2020. And from that conversation, I felt like I was in a really good space to facilitate sort of a longer conversation that turned into this book. And so the authors in this are activists, scholars, and journalists, so just really all over the place. And they're writing in a very accessible way that's it's really activist-minded, trying to think through the historical dependence on the prison and immigration industrial complexes and the carceral logics behind them that we see not just in these larger organizations and institutions, but the idea of single-issue veganism and the way vegan identity is constructed generally as well. Yeah, and I think so much of the uh, perception of veganism as, I wouldn't even say as a movement, but as a lifestyle identity Mm -hmm. um, is coded as white, is coded as reasonably wealthy, it's coded as reasonably well-educated. You know, there's a lot of things sort of counting against it in terms of uh, linking up with other kinds of radical activist movements, you know, they have to kind of overcome or undermine in order to build those sorts of solidarities. And it really doesn't make sense to me to even consider veganism as just a diet or just a lifestyle movement, right? Especially right. one that's centered on whiteness, because if you're, I, if you're really going into veganism, wanting to dismantle these institutions behind the commodification exploitation of animals, you have to recognize that they are built on the same logics that lead to other oppressions, both human and non-human, you know, natural and, and more than that. And so it really doesn't make sense to try to fight for animal liberation without working with the nexus of these, these social movements. Yeah. People like uh, Val Plumwood and other philosophers have pointed to like sort of a shared logic, you know, underlying these different uh, manifestations. But can we, let's back up a little bit for the listeners. Can you define what you mean by carceral veganism as opposed to maybe anti-carceral veganism? Yeah. So carceral veganism is a form of veganism that kind of uses the state to protect animals through forms of violence. You know, you see this in punitive justice and animal law. It's, it's all these logics that really see the solution to speciesism as incarcerating human beings, right? So it's really based on surveillance, on white supremacy, on capitalism, and it is both involved with and builds upon prison and and immigration industrial complexes. Um, One example we use in the book and that Lee Kurtz mentions in their chapter is, is different case law where these organizations using investigative undercover video ended up leading to the these felony charges against um, meatpacking workers and, and factory farm workers, and in some cases, even bringing them into ICE custody. And I shouldn't have to say why that's problematic, but a lot of organizations really saw these as successes. Yeah, And so it hasn't been until recently that animal lawyers and organizations in general have really, like I said, been shamed into trying to figure out how they've centered and and enacted white supremacy and harm and really trying to figure out what accountability looks like, not just, you know, to tokenize people of color or or just try to seem like they're doing enough performative allyship to get funding, but they actually are starting to reckon with what structurally they have done that's been harmful to marginalized communities. 
And carceral logic is behind a lot of that in these institutions and organizations. And so anti-carceral veganism really comes from a space of recognizing that oppressions are interconnected, that you can't fight for animal liberation while also harming marginalized people, right? Like that's, that's the main idea of it is that a, a vegan politics has to be anti-carceral, has to be anti-supremacist, um, has to be anti-capitalism in order to achieve liberation for non-humans and humans alike. Yeah. So maybe to concretize that for people, uh, I was hoping you could like help me think through, say, a slaughterhouse. So first mm-hmm. of all, um, what are the various sorts of abuses and marginalizations and harms that are being visited on basically every being associated with that slaughterhouse, not just the animals coming in, but also, you know, the employees and everyone else. There's this political scientist, um, Timothy Pacriot, who I think his book was Every 12 Seconds. It came out mm-hmm. when I was still in college. I was interning at Farm Sanctuary and I was, I was working at their education center and I was doing tours and everything. We had a little bookcase and in between people were coming in and out, I was reading it. And he, in his, his book, he goes undercover as a worker in, an, in a meatpacking plant and does a, a sort of autoethnography of what he experiences there to really understand something that's very, very hidden, right? The idea of compartmentalizing and, and, and really deconstructing an animal, right? Who is enacting the violence there? And he really tries to understand this, this politics of killing and how the, and who is really doing the killing in this space. And it's, it's so disconnected. And in it, he also explores you know, the people who work on the on the different parts, because there's sort of a hierarchy of which part of the meatpacking and a part of factory you're in. And so he explores what that hierarchy is and he explores people he's working with. And I think vegans go into this space thinking that the people who work in factory farms and meatpacking plants are sort of inherently violent, that they're sort of addicted to violence, that they don't see animals as being worthwhile of, of moral consideration. And in a lot of spaces that couldn't be further than the truth, right? The people who are forced to work in meatpacking plaques and factory farms are really the most marginalized people. They face the highest rates of PTSD, of of workplace injury, and end up really not having larger protections. We saw this a lot during the COVID-19 pandemic when there was no workplace safety involved there. And in this book, William Horn, who is a historian, he really does intellectual history. He's the one who facilitated that original conversation. Tries he looks at where we are now in the contemporary foodways and and food landscape, and and the way racial capitalism works in these spaces, and looks back to its historical genealogy, which is so helpful. And in his argument, he really sees the the makeup, the the landscape of the people who work in these spaces who are being not only financially exploited, but also in, you know, going through physical maiming and harming and injury through this workplace um, death during the COVID-19 pandemic as being connected to a history of, of you know, chattel slavery and, and racial capitalism and carceral logics. So it's really just deep in, deeply entrenched in the way our food system works. Yeah. And, you know, there were stories coming out that um, executives for meatpacking plants were taking bets on how many people mm-hmm. would be sick or die from and Tyson. Yeah, yeah. Tyson. Um, so, right. So there's that. And then that's, of course, in a U.S. context, filtered through issues of race, um, where it's usually marginalized and oppressed 
uh, racial groups, individuals from there, the ones that often get jobs in meatpacking plants, and tied to immigration and legal status in the United States. So it's usually new immigrants, uh, either with or and without documentation. And deportation, right. right? Because if you are if you're bringing up any issues, any workplace infringements, labor rights issues, you can't do that if you're a migrant worker, right? Yeah. You, you will be dispossessed, you'll be taken, you'll be, you know, removed from the space. So there really just are no protections. And that's what these factory farms, these slaughterhouses, these meatpacking spaces really are predators or are predating on these people. And yeah. that marginalization. Yeah. And, you know, you'd like you would think that people who run those would object to, uh, you know, random ICE raids to find people without documentation and remove them for deportation or prison. Um, but actually, they support it because it keeps a churn and, you know, keeps people from being there for a long time in solidarity and getting to know one another and all that sort of class formation stuff that happens when you work at a factory with other people. And um, if there's any talk of, of unionization, right? These executives will reach out and, and do tips. Right. To create this this space of fear and precarity that exactly. they can exploit. Yeah. And then, as you said, you know, it's physical harm to the people who work there with injuries, financial harm. And, you know, as you pointed out, mental harm, PTSD, um, which then often can be manifested in domestic violence in their own home. You know, it's so it's a lot of things all happening. Right. <laughs> I think There's a lot of community harm, um, yeah. not just to the workers and, and, and the spaces that they inhabit both while they're laboring and outside of it. But also, you know, the environmental impact yeah. of, of factory farms has been really highly studied. And there's this idea of environmental racism that they're going to be putting factory farms in, you know, not in white people's backyard. It's going right. in the spaces of people who don't have the political and economic uh, capital to be able to refuse the poisoning of their waters, the poisoning of their air. Yeah, exactly. And then and obviously the people who work there they and their families usually live nearby, so they're the most impacted. You know, so to the extent that you think it, environmental justice is important and environmental harms to people living nearby is bad, the fact that it happens to employees doesn't make it okay. It's, if anything, worse because they're also getting paid very poorly. So, okay, that's a terrible situation. What would the different approaches from like a, if, you know, mainstream NGO, carceral, vegan kind of organization be these sorts of bads if they found a slaughterhouse they were trying to reform or remove or something? Versus what would a more anti-carceral sort of approach look like? Sure. So at these larger organizations, it's very difficult to create legal precedent, right? Because the normalized violence that animals go through is, is very legal. And that's one of the issues that Marceau and I bring up in, in our different books, right, is that organizations will try to create a legal, an animal welfare organization will try to create a legal precedent showing that these more egregious, so-called egregious cruelty cases at factory farms where everything is inherently violent, right, should, should be right. dealt with with punitive justice. And that just really doesn't make sense because then workers are scapegoated while the processes still remain the same, right? There are no protections for birds, you know, for for. For chickens, there's very limited protections for, for most animals at factory farms. And so what may seem, what, what organizations might have seen as successes of, you know, a felony charge to a worker really doesn't have an impact for the animals and really just harms that worker and his communities, his family. And so if you are trying to work towards total liberation for animal liberation, it really just doesn't make sense to do that as as your campaign. 
And so what these authors do really successfully in this book is they talk about ways in which to move forward and, and fight not just towards human liberation, but animal liberation to ways to bring abolition into this work. One way is a sanctuary, right? There's sanctuary spaces are very exciting spaces that sort of can elicit multi-species justice. And, but obviously that can't help so many animals, right? That can only help a certain amount of animals. And so what larger organizations can do instead of going after what they see as one instance of egregious cruelty that will lead to one charge and leave the process untouched is really think through their messaging and some of the most exciting animal like law coming out of the animal law field are environmental cases that are brought together with workers that are brought together with environmental justice advocates and so when i was talking about that course on collaborative advocacy with sentient media that's really what that touches on not just how we can build relationships with different stakeholders and movements that we didn't see as connected to ours, but how we also have to do the internal work in organizations to make sure that we're safe to work with, right? Um, Ways that we can focus not just on the communication coming out of the organization, trying to challenge our own carceral logic, make sure that our internal culture is also safe, not just for the workers, but for people we collaborate with. Yeah, and that can be... It can be really difficult, but it's an important work because there's a tendency for people to say, you know, I'm going to come into this situation and I'm going to do a lot and it's going to be really helpful. <laughs> and I've already worked out in my head in advance before I get there what I'm going to do and how it's going to work. And, and that's uh, a problem between top down work, right. right? Especially in animal laws. A lot of these organizations will decide, they'll do this research, decide this is the case law they want to do and then look for a plaintiff. Uh, and then the plaintiff's wishes really aren't respected. Uh, instead of doing community luring, which is thinking of yourself as service to these people. Like the reason I want to go to law school is because I don't want to have my friends be screwed over. I don't want these these people, you know, who are more marginalized than I am to be exploited. And so if I can understand the law a little better, I can be a better service to my community. Yeah. So when you were putting the book together, how did you find uh, these authors? So it's an interesting mix. I mean, I mentioned earlier that this is my second collection. The first one I did with really celebrated um, activist scholar, Julia Feliz. They are a a really, really cool organizer who has done a lot of work specifically on Black veganism and Black bean communities. Um, They run sanctuary publishers. And so they and I worked on this collection focusing on centering trans and queer voices and vegan voices. And so... A few of the people I reached out to were in that book. We had someone that was from one of our submissions is from this great activist in India, Kanika, and and she was able to be part of Vegan Entanglements. I was also able to reach out to some people I worked with when I was an editor with the Activist History Review, different scholars I knew in the field just by sort of being in the space and, and organizing it, grassroots activism for 10 years. There's also different listservs or advocates and organizations who are fighting factory farming reached out to them there. So a big myriad of, of different ways to try to get these voices here. And I'm, I'm very happy with the, the very broad <laughs> writers that we have here. Because we do, we have journalists, we have scholars, we have activists, we have people who are very used to writing, people who haven't written that much. It's a great space that I, I feel like I helped to facilitate. 
That's great. And I, I know from experience that that can be a lot of work. The uh, book that I co-edited on food justice tried to have uh, activists um, write about their experiences and then have some academics use that sort of framework to discuss their own work. And, you know, in a dialogue that would be, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. spark collaborations and things in the future. And it was a lot of work. <laughs> I, I, you it's know, very it, difficult to try to get academics to recognize their audience it's because academia does that to you. Right. right? Is, and so it really just makes you have to feel like very competitive and, and feel like you have to prove yourself all the time. And but that ends up being very inaccessible. And so it, it was and working with different academics, trying to get them to recognize their audience and, and vice versa. What, it's always difficult that it in collections, but I, I really feel that this is one of the spaces I do best in is trying to raise, you know, historically marginalized voices, bring people who wouldn't be in conversation in conversation together and then see what that impact can be really think through not just issues and the problems and movements, but ways in which we can work together to fix those and move forward. Yeah. So I've had people on this podcast uh, ranging from vegan activists to people who are vegan but aren't activists to people who were vegan and aren't anymore for various reasons. Um, And so I'm wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about your own story, why you became vegan, and then, because this might be quite different, what are your thoughts about the best arguments in favor of being vegan because like the first one is very contingent about your own biography (laughs) and then the second one is you know now that you've thought about it like i became vegan when i was nine years old uh because i saw uh images in PETA magazine about the way factory farmed chickens were slaughtered and i saw those pictures and i went ah i see well done with that now which you know which isn't to say that now i'm a huge uh uncritical active uh advocate for PETA, but you know, what, what hits you and when it hits you is different from your considered opinion now. So maybe you could walk us through both your personal story and your thoughts. Yeah, for all the bad things with PETA, and I actually interviewed with PETA in DC right after I, I graduated with my MA, um, which is a, was a whole experience. Sure, yeah. But with all the bad things, they certainly have a brand name, right? Yeah. Like I remember I grew up in Morgantown, West Virginia, uh, which I think is surprising for a lot of people. And I remember people in my high school wearing the people eating tasty animals shirt, right? So people are doing (laughs) that and means PETA means something, right? Right. That that means something. And so there's a conversation happening that PETA for all of its spectacle activism and issues, very, very big issues, really does reach a lot of people. And so a little background of me. So I grew up in West Virginia. My mom was the first woman gender studies major, actually, of WBU. And oh. so I was raised really on ecofeminism. And and she wasn't vegetarian of my time in my raising, but she was, you know, before I was born. And so she had gone off. She was really just sort of like a hippie. I wish she would hate if I said that. So I hope she doesn't listen to this. <laughs> but she, like, I grew up on these, on Greta Guard, you know, on Carol Adams, on these larger eco-feminist voices, especially um, vegan feminists and um, sort of moving towards like world goddess worship and, and more into the theological growing up. So it's very interesting experience. My dad is Buddhist. And so that's the space that I sort of inhabited when I was growing up in West Virginia, which is, mm-hmm. you know, different than a lot of people. A little, um, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I feel like the stereotypes about Appalachia don't really fit with my story, which is Yeah, funny. although, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area of Northern California, and that particular upbringing, those authors was something I came into quite late. So it's it's not it's not as geographically specific as uh, people might think. 
Yeah, I feel like people have this whole rural-urban divide, but it's not quite as simple as that. And so when I was in middle school, probably like 11, I wanted to start going vegetarian because I, you know, it's it's very interesting what we feed kids, that you should care about animals or that we anthropomorphize, you know, animals in our, our videos. We show kids in movies and, and books. And then at the same time that we're teaching kids this ethics of, of what animals should be to humans, we also have this very weird ideology that it should be okay to eat them and commodify and exploit them right and but then we don't also aren't very visible in what animals are and what food is and and that's very confusing to a child it's very confusing to me and so when i was 11 or 12 i started learning about factory farming i don't quite remember how but i feel like i was already raised to really see myself as part of a web of relations and not to think of myself as better or not than any other living being because of my being raised as like I'm a goddess worshiper and a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of doing that, then eating animals, when I got past the cognitive dissonance, it was, it was very violent for me. It was very difficult for me to, to reckon with. And I very immediately, you know, and probably not very a healthy way, but I just tried to cut all animal products out of my life without really understanding how to do so. And so I, played with that for a few years. And then when I was 14, PCRM, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, right. uh, had this sort of like 14 day or 30 day vegan challenge. And so my mom and I did it together. And she was able, she like took the time to, to cook me all the recipes they had. And I don't usually like espousing this idea that veganism is around health or anything. But I used to have year long allergies and, you know, I was struggling a lot with, you know, depression and everything when I was like 14 and I just felt so much better on a vegan diet. And now I'm not a very healthy vegan. I'm very much a fast food vegan now, but it was from that space that I started learning how animal liberation was really connected with these other movements for liberation. And so I started like an animal welfare club in high school and made all my friends watch earthlings it was really horrifying <laughs> <laughs> and you know i was part of like the PETA kids club we got stickers and comics and then i learned about farm sanctuary and was really invested in like this idea of compassionate communities and i learned more about environmental racism and by the time i got to college i started working with the humane league as a campus coordinator and with farm sanctuary i worked with other organizations had my own campus, like community, compassionate communities on campus and really started to also connect with like the progressive communities at my school. And I really wanted to go into food policy work because I thought, all right, grassroots activism wasn't making the impact I wanted to do. You know, I was doing leafleting, I was going to conferences, I was doing all of that and I didn't see the impact there. So I was like, all right, maybe it's, it's this work. And so I, after I did my MA in political science, started working in policy and then everything just dies in sessions, right? And so I'm like, all right, well, after doing government relations and policy for a year, I'm like, maybe animal law is the way to go. And so I worked with ALDF and and very much was, was disgruntled with my experience there. And from there, I, I started my own work in DIJ and, and labor rights for advocates because of the experiences I had had, not just of you know unpaid internships and, and being underpaid, but also, you know, having to feel like I had to be 
closeted, having issues with transphobia if I wasn't out, um, you know, being in spaces during the Me Too movement AR where, you know, I was trying to navigate sexual assault and, and moving past and trying to survive that. And so with all these conversations, I really felt like I had done so much work for the animals and just that not only was animal agriculture getting worse, but that the movement I was in not only like didn't respect me, but was actively harming me. And so yeah. the work I've been doing recently is trying to work towards animal liberation and DEIJ and these movements to make a healthier workspace for everyone involved. And then yeah, that, for your other question, right. um, yeah, sorry, that was a long No, question. that was beautiful. I mean, I think that it can be, you know, so much to say about that. First, maybe just as a pause, I, first of all, the fact that you had some support from your mom, I think is really important. Uh, speaking for myself when I was nine, I had the opposite of that. So that was very lucky. Yeah, I, I was I was having to, you know, eat just the bun and the lettuce when the burgers were made kind of a thing for quite a while. Um, so that's quite good. But then also, um, you know, the and my mom's vegetarian now, too. She's been vegetarian since I stayed vegan. She stayed vegetarian since mm -hmm. I was 14. And that's that's been 12 years now. That's fantastic. Years. Yeah, the the uh, being an, being an example and uh, sort of showing especially loved ones or close intimate relationships that it's a possibility that you're not weird, I think can do a lot to sort of destigmatize it. But then also the ways that even organizations that are oriented around one conception of justice or one important aspect of justice can then perpetuate a lot of other injustices, you know, or transphobia or other kind of phobias, um, other marginalizations is, you know, I don't know what to say that's interesting about it. It's sad. It sucks. <laughs> it's a bummer, but it's really, yeah, really common. it's getting better. In, yeah, in 2020, maybe. you know, while these conversations were happening and organizations were trying, finally, publicly trying to reckon, you know, with the oppression and harm they might have done, I re for the first time, even though vegans of color had been saying the same critiques for decades, right, they were finally being listened to and finally being marginally comp compensated for their labor. And I really thought, you know, that even though I'd been saying the same thing for a decade, too, that people were finally starting to think that be interested in what I had to say. And that really wasn't because we were, any of us were changing what we were saying, just because people were more receptive and being shamed into making those changes. But two years later, I really just haven't seen the impact of these organizations um, really following through with their DIJ work. And that's yeah. been very difficult to navigate. No, making public proclamations turns out to be a lot easier than actually structurally transforming stuff that you are benefiting from. <laughs> Uh, and it ends up being a lot of people just leaving these organizations, yeah. right? People worry why there's not retention or why a lot of these organizations are very, very white and just assume that if they make a DEI statement, this will change. But these spaces are very unsafe. And like, I've never worked in one of these organizations for more than eight or nine months because I I couldn't viably do that. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't in a safe, these spaces weren't safe enough for me and certainly weren't safe enough for other people, especially people of color. Yeah. No, for sure. Well, so yeah, what sort of arguments would you make or position would you take then for people who maybe aren't vegan? Because I think a lot of people don't see a connection, even if they already care about other important issues in justice, you know, uh, various injustices in our society against women or against uh, certain races or against people with certain gender identities or orientations, you know, any number of things can matter to you, climate change, right? But then making that that connection to animals, um, I think is, you know, it's, it's contingent. Not a lot of people do it or not everybody does it. So what for you then is that argument? 
Yeah, so there's a lot of anti-veganism and, and anti-vegan ideas yes. in the left the left movement. And that was also very difficult for me because I always never felt like I quite belonged in, in any movement. And it's getting a little better uh, because of the work of people who, you know, like for me personally, I have, I come from a marginalized background and I, I can't ignore oppression, right? Because it personally affects me. And so I, I can't be a single issue vegan because I've never was afforded that that privilege. And so when I speak to other people who, you know, come from like marginalized gender identities and, and more marginalized backgrounds, but who are very anti-vegan, I, I find it very exhausting, right? A lot of their, their reasons why they're anti-vegan is because they met one bad vegan and because they think of veganism as a diet. But once you reconceptualize veganism as a politics or as a movement, it gets easier for people to recognize the way power is built on power. Right. And so you're talking earlier about how Tyson executives were literally betting on workers' lives. Right. And, and so I wrote a piece exactly on that for Sentient Media when that occurred during the COVID-19 pandemic and argued that it was because these executives view their workers in the same way as they view their, the animals that become their commodities and their capital, right, as, as non-human. And so when we think of the... The category of the animal and a lot of black vegans have written on this axle co you know um and it, i think their name is blosseron I, I, I don't know how to speak the, the french part of it but they did mm-hmm. afro dog a lot of different scholars have really focused on how the construction of the animal has been used to historically harm marginalized communities right and that's also what we talk right. about in the queer and trans voices book that Julie and I did, right? Because queerness and transness was was policed as being something that was unnatural, right? And that's something that really queer theory focuses on. So all of this is connected, is what I'm trying to get to, is that this construction of the animal not only leads to the exploitation and commodification of non-human animals, but also marginalized people. And so if you see veganism as a political orientation towards liberation, it really becomes something to me that you can't ignore, right? Because in order to fight for human liberation, to really fight racial and partial capitalism, which is what the Vegan Entanglements books talks about, you have to also try to reckon with and and tangle with this idea of, of the animal and and its its use in colonialism, its its use in this idea of progress and civilization, and and the idea that to fight for any of this, to fight for um, abolition, to fight for trans liberation, to fight for the end of colonialism, the end of white supremacy, imagining worlds outside of that and that constraint, you also have to reckon with speciesism. And speciesism is the idea that there's a hierarchy of humans above non-humans. And we see that in in really every part of our society. And not only does it harm non-humans, but also harms other species. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, so maybe this is actually, it's all just a continuation of your work on uh, the suffragist movement uh, that, you know, as Carol Adams pointed out, in the sexual politics of meat, you know, that when people see this line between humans and non-humans and one group is, you know, agents that need to be respected to some extent that have access to laws and rights and various sorts of protections under the state and other ones are outside of that, you know, and 
can be treated however you want. Um, a move that some people try to make is, you know, it's wrong for you to conceive of us as women or us as a different race as being on the wrong side of that line. In fact, we're on the right side of that line. But the more radical critique uh, is to <laughs> question the line, even though you can make a lot of progress, maybe even faster progress uh, in some limited ways by trying to move something onto the other side of a line, you know? Yeah, I was in this, my first class in college was this religious studies class on environmentalism and like the earth and religion, I think it was called. And it was the first time I had really read so much about people dunking on the enlightenment. And that's also what my mom really focused on, right? Was about this like kind of gospel. She was, and she was like a very much like a woman's rights advocate. And so the idea of these dualisms between culture and nature between men and women between you know cis heteronormative and and trans and queer liberal people outside of that and it really just works like that too with with human and animal and so it's not the organizations when you're trying to get power it really just always goes back to white supremacy right you can really get any amount of of economic and social and cultural capital in america if you rely on on whiteness and so exactly what you're saying with the suffragettes, they were very conscious in the idea that if they relied on these white supremacist discourse saying that, well, I'm white, I'm going to solidify the white vote all by the same way as my husband, you know, well, we, this won't end to this, this whole reimagining of the South won't happen the same way if you give us the right to vote. It's the same thing you saw in, in the LGBT movement, too, with how really what began as a movement questioning what is normative, really, really questioning um, carcerality and surveillance, right? Because the people who face the harm, the largest harm from the state for visible queerness, and, and Hugh Ryan has had a great book about this on, on like the house of detention, where those who were policed for not fitting into what's seen as gender normative presentation, right? So, so people who really destabilized this normative idea of, of, of cisness, of gender, of what a person should look like in spaces they should inhabit. And that was really what began the queer movement, not just at the Compton cafeteria, cafeteria riots, right, but also at Stonewall. And then as organizations and the LGBT movement moved towards assimilatory politics, moved towards um, solidifying civil rights law, into giving rights towards those who are seen as the most, you know, the easiest subjects to give rights to, which always ends up being people who are very cis, people who are white, people who have economic stability, right? Because capitalism can exploit that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they absolutely. can make money off of you. If you were seen as a consumer, capitalism doesn't care if you're a gay consumer or not. And, and so people who really were harmed in all these movements always end up being the most marginalized. You know, the queer movement has really started to interrogate this because, and what I wrote on my thesis was this organization called the Black Pride Four in 2017 stopped a pride parade, you know, literally put their bodies in this, this very white space. These, these trans black activists put their bodies in this white space to have a moment of silence for the murder of, of trans women. Right. And were met with, with carceral violence met with the, and that was made something that was very invisible this, these logics of white supremacy very invisible and so you see that not just in the sort of jeff movement the lgbt movement but also in veganism and and animal welfare movements 
yeah, the the irony of police uh, protecting a gay pride movement, it shows by moving onto the right side of that line, you do get a lot of support mm-hmm. from the state. You know, it is uh, there are a lot of benefits that come with it. There's movement. power. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. You get power. If, if you're a person you're... who weren't seen as a, as a person, right, going back to that human animal right. divide. And then you realize that if you are a consumer and you prioritize your whiteness and center your whiteness and don't disrupt the state. Yeah. and ignore the power structures, then you can assimilate very easily. But not only does that disconnect you from the histories of, of resistance in our movements, right, and, and turns you into an oppressor, but also very much so enacts real material violence onto the most marginalized who don't have access to that difference. Yeah, I'll, I'll help and support you in harming the people outside the wire as long as I get to be inside the wire and look, exactly. I promise I'll behave. I'll pro- I promise I'll behave if you let me in. So let's get back. In fact, since we're thinking about this idea about being on one side of the wire or the other as a, you know, as a way to get benefits for yourself, but further marginalizing the people that don't get to come in with you. Um, do you think that there is space for um, carceral vegan sort of NGOs to do good work? Like is tactically is calling the police or trying to get fines levied or trying to you know, change a law that says it is okay to do these things to animals, but not these things, or, you know, you have to wait two days, those sorts of marginal changes. Um, is that tactically okay? Or is it um, always reinforcing and supporting unjust systems and we should do something else? Yeah. So, I mean, what these organizations have to reckon with is really what their, what their goals are, right? And if their goals are to move towards the end of, you know, speciesist logic towards t- animal liberation, no, right? But I don't think that is their goal. Like, I think these, sure. these organizations and single issue organizations, whether consciously or not, really are centering white supremacist ideas, um, not just like it goes from these white funders to these this white management to majority white organization, you know, and then when they're asking where are our black employees, where are our trans employees, it's not a space for us, right, because it's very structurally made this and so that's why these campaigns happen because they haven't interrogated their own whiteness and so if they're asking you know why are why are people consuming more meat you know internationally why are more animals uh, dying you know why if we're trying because the vegan movement also in the past decade or so moved towards really working with with capitalist interests right and so when you people are celebrating the impossible burger at, at fast food restaurants, right? How much of an impact is that making? And ignoring the idea that, you know, who is it actually giving capital to or what impact that's making. But from the animal perspective, having these options hasn't decreased animal consumption. It's actually brought more people in and led to larger profits and more consumption of the animal-based products at these spaces. And so these organizations that are moving towards working with corporate interests, working with the police state, you know, working on solidifying really white supremacist interests, whether or not they're conscious in doing so. When they're called out by their, you know, black employees, by their trans employees, by their marginalized employees, they end up retaliating, right? When when workers want to organize to be able to change campaigns, not just protect their own, like protect their benefits and, and fight for a higher salary, but also try to get people on the board or, or move towards what they think should be centered. They are met with union busting tactics. 
Right. You know, people, and it's not like people aren't doing anti-carceral work. There are tons of black vegans doing this work who aren't funded, you know, and people will say that they, they love my work with a, you know, and they're like, yeah, trans people should feel safe here, but they don't monetarily fund it. And that's something that specifically black vegans have had to see, you know, and, and these people who are doing this work, Dr. Breeze Harper, are um, super overworked, you know, super unrespected and just end up feeling tokenized. Yeah, no, for sure. It can be um, a situation where groups that have more stability and more security say, you know, thank you for coming. This is amazing. Thank you for giving this talk. This is so cool. Okay. Anyway, now please attend 1500 other uh, talks so that we can say we had somebody from a marginalized group uh, present at our organization, you know, and and we're not going to support you in doing this, but we think that, you know, presumably you'll want to, right? And you want to take on all of the burden of being a mentor to anybody who's coming up. That's fine for you um, because we want to have voices like yours on organizations. You don't mind sitting unpaid on various boards. A lot you know. of unpaid labor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Christy Dotson is a um, uh, black philosopher whom I know, and she's written quite extensively about the various burdens that are placed in academia um, on mm-hmm. women and on people of color through, I mean, if you want to be optimistic, through an intention to be inclusive and to bring people in. If you want to be less optimistic, then through them worrying about optics. But either way, mm-hmm. that you're asked to do a ton of stuff that people see as giving you an opportunity or they they describe as giving you an opportunity. Aren't you so lucky that you get to lie now and do this other thing too? Um, but, you know, it's a... I mean, a lot of it is, is labor that people don't even realize it's happening, right? Because I was the first out trans employee at some at most of these organizations. And I have to continually educate people and and say why things were wrong, why microaggressions were there. And that puts me in a precarious position, right, from a labor right. perspective. It's seeing, like, I was very much, I feel like I was viewed as a rabble rouser. Yeah. And at some point you just leave, right? And that happens to a lot of women of color specifically. Yeah, no, they get to, you. they get to use you to improve their own systems or their own processes or whatever, uh, you know, lowering the chance of them getting sued someday and letting them mm-hmm. talk about how inclusive they are. Uh, but also they get to paint you as the pain in the butt, you know, uh, you know, Zane's making trouble. So we've got to do something, you know, there's, there's lots of ways of making it on you that they have to change stuff. So you, they, they get benefited twice as a result. When all these organizations were pushed into getting outside DEI auditors, right. And these auditors had been doing this work for a long time and no one had been paying them. Right. And then after right. 2020, there was suddenly this huge influx of people saying, you know, help me, help me, help me. And then if they, they're like, these are my rates. They're like, Oh no, <laughs> right. These organizations <laughs> right. don't want to pay these rates. And then if they do, they don't actually want your critique. They don't actually want to make these changes. And so a lot of these DI audits, when these auditors came in with these policy changes that needed to be made, organizations just refused and left the contract. Yeah. It's a real bummer. And in fact, what they'll also, what also often happens is they'll use, DI to reinforce other, you know, capitalist mm-hmm. uh, controls that they have over their employees, you know, so they don't like the suggestion that an auditor might make about how to change pay scale practices, for example, <laughs> you know, like we'll pass on that one. Thanks. But we love the part where we uh, talk to our employees about these. So yeah, in fact, let's have uh, quote unquote listening sessions where we get people to reveal uh, stuff that we can put in their permanent file. So if we ever need to fire them, say they're doing union activism later, we can say, well, you know, you admitted that you've, uh, you know, that you have uh, had biases against people uh, from marginalized groups, um, you know, at work. So, you know, we're going to fire you for that. So it's it's a way of um, using 
diversity audits to benefit themselves in other ways. A bummer. And I mean, white that, supremacy always is always continues, right? Exactly. Well, like capitalism, forms. very, very inventive. You know, it'll always find it's, a way to do something terrible with a good idea you had. <laughs> and so um, even if you add these other letters, right, because it started as diversity and then when they realized that wasn't selling well enough or that they weren't actually becoming more diverse, they added equity and then added inclusion right. and added justice, right? And then none of that ever actually includes a dedication to economic justice. And yeah. I mean, from in my personal you know, experience, like I, I personally need to not be economically precarious to be able to exist. Right. And so- <laughs> Weird, you know, what you an odd idiosyncratic- yeah, it's so wild. And it's so a, even if I'm trans and in this organization, like I still need health insurance. I still yeah. like, it's really important for me. And so it's something that these organizations really don't want to be called out on because they're like, well, we're already, you know, having a, a gay day. Isn't that enough? <laughs> right. Wait, you also want to get paid? Now you're just being <laughs> What do you mean? We were, I thought we were here because we, we wanted to. There's always this discourse that you're not doing enough for the animals, right? Right. You know, or, or they'll say that by asking, I mean, you know, this might, perhaps this is just my own negative experience, but sometimes NGOs that are working for a good cause, you know, say non-human animals, will when you complain or say, how about you pay me for this <laughs> instead of asking for volunteer labor, they'll say, hey, don't you care about animals? Like, look at all the good that we do, you know, by asking us to pay you or by asking us to pay you more, you're basically hurting animals. Like, isn't that, doesn't that make you feel bad? Which, uh, no, that's, that's something we hear a, a lot, you know, as I've been moving into more of a labor and organizing role in, in these nonprofit spaces. Yeah. Um, you know, in my personal experience, like I mentioned, I was working for a larger organization and then was sexually assaulted. It was because I was out there in California working on Prop 12 and it was night in L.A. and they pressured us, you know, to go out that if you were going to lose the, the proposition, people aren't going to vote for it unless we're there all the time, including the night in spaces you are comfortable working in. Yeah, that's terrible. How and did that's they? That's not unusual. Sure. How did they respond to that? Like, how did they react? Oh, uh, they that called happened? their attorneys. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, because this organization had um, was really hit by Me Too AR, and obviously hadn't right. done the the structural work after everyone had left because of, of sexual harassment, and so they were very worried about the PR issues there as of an intern being sexually assaulted, and so. Yeah. They're like, hey, can uh, yeah, you please they're... could you please sign this before we express any uh, sympathy or regret? Because we've been told that saying "I'm sorry <laughs> that happened" might imply we're leaving ourselves open to suits Liable. later. So, yeah, yeah so luckily, you you, you never, sign this. I've, I uh, I've never had to sign an NDA or anything. Otherwise, I I feel like they probably really wish I had in all these spaces. <laughs> <Right>, sure. <laughs> watch watch that moving forward. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know, as I said to you in the email, one of the things that I do and I teach my philosophy of food class to get students to open up um, and have interesting conversations is to focus around a particular food that has some kind of meaning to them. Because we've kind of, I mean, you know, it's our fault as academics, but we've taught students that they should be very leery of sharing uh, philosophical ideas that they have or intuitions that they have um, or things that they learn at home. You know, a lot of my students at my university are first generation students um, from uh, Spanish speaking backgrounds, for example. Um, you know, often their parents are from other countries. And so I don't think we do a great job of, or rather we do a really good job of doing something bad, which is making them feel ashamed of what their family has told them. And so they don't want to volunteer what their grandmother said, because, you know, I might make them feel bad or make their grandma feel bad or put them to a decision point. You know, so there's a lot of like kind of self-deprecating stuff. idea of knowledge and who produces knowledge. Exactly. And centers very much on white supremacy. Right. <laughs> yeah. But with the exception of food, 
because my students, they'll be leery about sharing ethics. But if I ask them about a good recipe, they will defend their grandma's recipe to the death. They're happy to advocate for it, to talk about how important it is. And they'll talk about like how some food means something. And so doing that assignment in the class is then expanded out. So students will then talk about food that they don't like and what that means to them or you know, even just something that they would always get at McDonald's when their mom was driving them between the two jobs that she was working as a single mom. Mm-hmm. Like one of my students spoke really eloquently about, uh, you know, stopping a drive through. So it doesn't have to be something that you cook, but I feel like talking about food is a good way to get at uh, who we are as a person. Um, so I asked you to maybe think of a recipe that you'd like to share with our audience because you can't sit down and eat with everybody uh, listening. Can you talk a little bit about what you chose? Yeah. So going back to, you know, my mom, when we went vegan together for those 30 days of PCRM, one of the recipes that, that she found was from Oshi Glows, which is this food blog sure, from yeah. 2010. I know it. I know it. Yeah. And so she made this butternut squash mac and cheese where you boil the cashews for 15 minutes and or else you let them sit out for three hours, whatever's easiest for you. Right. And then create like add nutritional yeast to it and everything. And it makes this really wonderful um, butter and squash mac and cheese that is, is super creamy, is, is super cheesy in a way that I love. And it ends up just being mostly kale. We add kale to it. And so it's mostly kale with, because I love kale, and then like a little bit of mac and cheese on the side. And it's the best thing. Like going back to Morgantown um, tomorrow, actually, I'm flying back for the Appalachian Studies Association Conference because I have another book on queerness in Appalachia that came out at the same time as this vegan entanglements one. So very different audiences, but I come from the same place writing with both of them. And so I asked her, we're doing the book launch at this this bar that she went to in like the 80s during Straight Edge Day that her friend now owns. And she's going to be making me vegan butter and squash mac and cheese for it. <laughs> and I'm just super excited Absolutely. to be part of that space. Let me ask you a little bit um, about the Appalachia Studies, in fact, because um, you're the second person I've had on this podcast, in, uh, along with Joey Alloy. Who, oh, uh, I love Joey. Yep, yeah, he's a he's a good friend of mine. Uh, who, although one time, as an aside, I'll tell you a story. Uh, we were at a party at a at a at a sorry, we're not allowed to call them parties at a reception for a uh, for a conference. A we were working, we were working, uh-huh. uh, but there was free alcohol. But it was a it was a job related thing. Um, please, yeah. you know, don't get mad at me about that. But um, <laughs> uh, somebody came up to him and said, "Oh, you're two people," meaning him and me. I thought I was one person. I was seeing a lot. You guys look so alike. And really? Joey, and Joey got offended. And then I got offended <laughs> that Joey was offended. Because I, I was like, wait a minute. Well, hold on. Wait, why is that an insult to you? Uh, <laughs> you should be complimented that somebody thought you looked like me. What is that? So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's Joey, a really funny. Yeah, I've, I've talked to Joey because, you know, he, as like when I was doing, because I was working with Highlander um, with Gabrielle Chapman on on her work. She does a lot of DI stuff. And so she was doing this project with them on like an audit with food sovereignty. And so I got to interview Joey for that and was mm-hmm. so excited to talk with him. Yeah, his work is amazing. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what you've done or some of your work thinking about Appalachian studies, especially queer Appalachian studies? That sounds really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it was really weird growing up in Appalachia and then leaving the region because growing up in Appalachia, it's kind of boring, right? But it, it's just mm-hmm. like anywhere else. And then I was actually, I went to school in Maryland and then I did my MA in Budapest and I was in Budapest during the 2016 election. And so, and, and the release of J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. And so all of a sudden, you know, this happens all the time. Yeah, I know. Oh my God. That's a whole different thing. (laughs) But, and, um, but all these, 
pundits suddenly just blame the Trump election on Appalachia as it happens, right? Because Appalachia has been historically used as a sacrifice zone yeah. for, you know, extraction for natural resources, as well as sort of a cultural extractive zone. And sure. so people always like blaming the stereotype of, of the, the white hillbilly who, who votes against their own interests instead of actually grappling with the the power structures behind the Trump election and the rise of fascism. Cause most of the, the most radical work I know is being done by people in Appalachia in the South. Right. And so by writing off Appalachia in the South, you're writing off tons of really great organizers specifically from like black backgrounds. Right. Yeah. And, and seeing as Appalachia is an only white space devoid of, of like whatever seen as like left advocacy is not only super inaccurate, but super problematic, especially when white supremacy enacts itself in, in Appalachia, but also the rest of the United States, right? And the people who were voting for Trump were not very economically impoverished as sure. Appalachians are. Well, yeah. I mean, and blaming uh, folks living in Appalachia for the Trump election, I think is a great idea because they're so powerful as a group <laughs> that we should definitely, definitely just try to make their lives worse by being mad at them. Um also, I think people like Elizabeth Cat did this. What's wrong when you're what's what are you saying wrong with Appalachia or or something? What's mm-hmm. wrong with your and her book really talks on you know if anyone won the election it was no one right, right. because Appalachians are so used to being disenfranchised and their their needs not mattering for any kind of a political elite that they're not going to vote for anyone and I mean. Uh, I saw so much organizing happening for Bernie Sanders, right? Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders was a super big deal in West Virginia and that has a background in labor organizing that's been written out of our history books. And so that was sort of the space I was in after 2016. There was this zine organization that has has now been canceled called Queer Appalachia. That was really the first time I, I saw a representation of queer and trans that made sense to me because the metronormative and um, sort of pink capitalist idea of queerness didn't didn't resonate with me, and so I never really seen myself in in media, and I didn't have the language to understand what being queer and trans meant for my own background, and so that scene project and Instagram community really helped me be in conversation with these people that for the first time in my life, I felt like part of a space, which is always very difficult because they're always very anti-vegan, right? And so like (laughs) most of my work during that time was begging them to be vegan and then begging everyone who was vegan to be less horrible (laughs) and sort of still is. Right. Um, And so in 2018, I started my own zine community really focused on on trans liberation in Appalachia. And from those conversations I, I had, that community that I built there, we made this anthology that started in 2018 and had a really, really rough and obstacle-oriented um, editorial history that is finally being published now. And so I, I'm very excited to finally meet these people that I've been building solidarity with for the past four or five years, the first time in person this weekend. That's awesome. So if people are interested in finding out about uh, either of the books that have come out recently or some of your work with RARA or some of these other organizations, where can people find your stuff? Sure. So, I mean, with the books, I think the best way is to go straight to the publisher. So I work with Lantern Publishing on the Vegan Entanglements book. I've worked with Sanctuary Publishing on the Queer and Trans Veganism book. And then PM Press is one of the, the Queer Appalachia book. 
Um, Rara, we have a website that has launched. We haven't incorporated yet, but we're building uh, that incorporation now and are hoping to launch within the next six months. And that's rightsforadvocates.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can see our work there. And then if you're interested, I don't know when this is coming out, but on the 31st, me and two contributors are going to be working uh, with Firestorm on a book talk that's virtual. And so Firestorm has always really celebrated my work. They're this really cool anarchist vegan cafe, vegetarian cafe in Asheville, North Carolina. And I used to always go to my mom. I would beg my mom and she was so nice. She would take me to Asheville once a year because there wasn't vegan food in West Virginia, right? Like (laughs) that just wasn't a thing. And so we would drive down to Asheville, North Carolina, which Veg News said was like the most vegan friendly small city in the United States. And that's where we'd go every year, right? And so I would go to Firestorm when I was like 14 and 15 and reading my first scenes, like hanging off my first punks, trying to like understand it's like I identified as like straight edge punk and I didn't really know what that meant when mm-hmm. I was 15. And that was that space that I got to kind of experience that with and experiment with that. And they've really supported my work after that. So it's always feels like coming home. When we That's really cool. With them. Yeah. I wrote an article, uh, I don't know, years ago for a critical animal studies journal about how, uh, just for some anarchists, being vegan seems like an obvious, of course, this is connected. This is the same thing. And for other anarchists, it seems as either completely disconnected or actively just some sort of bourgeois distraction and tried to find some kind of common ground between the two of those uh, <laughs> diametrically opposed uh, positions. You know, you can read the article and see if I was able to successfully do that. Uh, you yeah, know, you'll send it to me. It's, it's, it's debatable. interesting because when I was in Baltimore, I fell really into the anarchist punk community. And it was one of the most toxic spaces I've ever been in, you know, and and there's always this really weird brand of, of woke patriarchy and, and Mm -hmm. toxic masculinity that exists in these anarchist spaces. um, That's very predatorial. And so it's, it's very difficult for me (laughs) to try to, to want to be in these, these spaces that politically make so much sense, but then the people in them don't actually do the, the work. And partially it's because we all have our own trauma, right? Sure. People who are interested in this work have been historically traumatized. And we end up, if we don't have, we don't have access to help, to, you know, benefits to, to therapy, and we aren't able to, to work through those traumas and have been acting those violence on each other. But in the other way, there are people who are drawn to these left spaces um, as a way to sort of get away with, with being harmful. And so, you know, I want anarchism and, and these ideas of anarchism and veganism that do make so much sense together to really grow in, in an authentic and healthy way. And I really hope that, you know, between all of our work that has been happening lately, that we create a new, a really authentic brand of anarchism that isn't harmful. That's, fa- that's a fantastic place to stop. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thanks, Ian. This is great. Yeah, we should hang out to sometimes so just to chat in general. I, I really appreciate this. That was my conversation with Zane McNeil. Links are in the show notes, including a link to both of the new books we discussed, as well as an opportunity to attend a virtual book reading. Check it out. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 